All right, without further ado, uh, Stephen, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, big effort for Stephen. Uh, Stephen uh, has driven up from Sydney for this 45-minute uh, this session and back again, and is midstream of multiples of projects, uh, including uh, a major project, which is CEO, which will transform humanity. And I'm gonna, we're going to talk about that towards the end of this session. Uh, so to make time to come and talk to this group, uh, I think is a real privilege for us. So thank you for doing that. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, you know from the briefing um, that uh, this is a group of about 100 people who who pretty much have influence over 15,000 financial planners thereabouts. So all of the financial planners that we have in Australia uh, are diminishing, but very important group that influence millions of people's financial lives. Um, one of the great things that makes Connexus, I think, excellent is we have a briefing with every speaker before any conference. We produce about 20 conferences a year. So that's many hundreds of speakers. And as with Stephen, we had an hour last week in briefing or, or whatever time was. Uh, so there's always that kind of preparation. So I don't need to go into any further context other than dive into it and say, this dude was the CEO of Facebook for seven years until very recently. You've probably heard of Facebook. We're going to talk about digital disruption and the changes you might expect in your world, but also humanity more broadly. Let's start out with the observations of the changes of the last couple of decades. Yeah, you've set, you've set high expectations about changing humanity by the end of my talk in 45 minutes, so hopefully we'll hit that. And great to be here, and thank you for all your ears and your time today. I might be the only thing that stands between you and alcohol, so if I am, uh, I'll try to get you there as, as smoothly as possible. Um, uh, so disruption in the past few decades. So I was lucky enough uh, during my time at Facebook to kind of be on, the way I characterize it, I was on the front of the roller coaster. And so we never were quite sure when that roller coaster was going to come off the tracks. And sometimes it seemed to jump the tracks and we get back on. And it's, it was interesting during the time I was there from about 2012 until um, 2011 to 2017, um, you would often be in Silicon Valley or inside Facebook, and you'd see a pace at which things were changing and things were moving, and how we were using technology to, in our own way, try to disrupt the world. And then I would step out of Facebook, and I did that on a regular basis. I would go out and I'd see big companies here in Australia and other parts of the world. And it was like we were, I was in a different era. It was like they were, they were in a different world than we lived in. And they didn't understand things like AI or, or uh, you know, big data or, how we were using technology to kind of attack their industry or attack them, and, and, and this is even true of the media industry. I mean, I had relationships with some of the biggest media players in this country, and you could see they didn't understand what we were and what we were doing. And, and many of them, that led to either one of two reactions. One was dismissal, which is, hey, that's not gonna bother us, it won't disrupt us. You know, famously, uh, Jeffrey Bukes back in 2010 or so, who was the CEO of Time Warner, he said, are you worried, in response to the question, are you worried about Netflix, he said, uh, is the Albanian army, you know, am I worried about the Albanian army invading? He was dismissive of Netflix. And of course, the value of their business went like this, and Netflix went like that. And so that's one reaction, which is dismissive. The other reaction is, uh, oh shit, I better figure this out, because this could, this could change everything. And I think now we're getting more of the old shit, we need to figure this out reactions. But even then, uh, I think, the, remember, the, the, tech, the tech guys have continued to move ahead. And so I find a lot of mainstream business, even today, is still behind. Um, they're kind of fighting the last battle or the last war. And so I think there still is this big gap. I think it's narrowed a bit, but I, I still think there's a big gap. So, and, and those disruptions have purely come from things like the rise of, uh, 
uh, essentially data as a, as a differentiator. If I wanted to boil it down to one thing, it's, it's data as a differentiator. Now we have the computing power, we have the cloud, we have the algorithms, we have the business models. And so you have businesses like Google and Facebook um, that didn't exist, even the concept of search marketing, um, you know, uh, 20 years ago was you had to explain it to someone, what is search? You know, the concept of social media didn't exist 20 years ago. I remember, I can remember my time at Facebook having to explain to people what social media was. I mean, now you, you don't really have to explain it, but I can remember explaining that, you know, this, this is how it works. And that was about 10 years ago. It was to me on that Tisco last week, right? Yeah, and now for, you know, Facebook's worth almost, what, seven or $800 million today, and then there's all these other social media platforms. So that's how quickly the disruption can happen, and, uh, and I think there's gonna be more waves coming uh, in, in the next few years. So what do you see as the disruptive uh, elements likely to smash the financial services industry, and in particular, financial advice, potentially? Okay, well, I'm sure you've got other uh, doomsayers and prognosticators, but let me kind of maybe generalize this, because I'm not deep in your industry, but you know, I can look at what you do uh, from an outside and kind of get, make a few, draw a few conclusions. I think one is, or, or observation, so one is that, um, as I say, data has come to sort of change the world, and so what are the tools that we're using around data? Well, artificial intelligence is essentially just very advanced data analytics, right? We've, we've been doing data analytics for hundreds of years, thousands of years, but it's just very advanced. And, and now things like quantum computing will take that to another level. And so what that's going to start to do, and is already, it's already doing in our everyday lives, it's going to start to remove lower cognitive jobs from the things that we have to do. And this has been going on again for hundreds of years. You know, our, all of our ancestors a few hundred years ago, they made their, their living by manual labor, right? Now we've pretty much replaced manual labor with machines, right? We have trucks, we have cars. You know, you, you don't have to use a, 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 you don't have to pull the cart up the hill yourself. You, have a, 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 you had a horse to do it, now you've got a, a truck to do it. So that's going to continue. That theme's going to continue, but I think it's going to accelerate in the next few years. So things that today that we take for granted are part of your job or your people's jobs are going to go away. They're going to be done by machines. And those are going to be, for, for centuries, it was the manual labor that was taken away. Now it's going to be lower, it's lower cognitive labor. And it's already happening. It's happening every day. It's happening on the, on the phone that you use and how you do search. You, and you'll see it. You know, you see AI coming into little things like predictive text when you're writing a, a text or a, an email, like, uh, you know, um, like recommendation engines when you search for something on Amazon or, or Catch or something, say people have bought this also, but that's all AI. And it's, 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 it's taking lower cognitive things. You're recommending a product to you is actually not a higher cognitive thing in so many ways, but it's, it's, it's bringing it to you in an automated way. So that's gonna happen to your industry as well. You can have lower cognitive functions It'll be replaced by machines. But then what does that mean? It means that you're probably gonna get the, your, your world to be divided into two. There'll be, the, there'll be the winners in the lower cognitive world where things will probably be around scale, low cost, uh, quick uh, iterations of improvements, you know, staying on the cutting edge of just being 1% better than the next, the next competitor. And then that's, so that's one side. And then the other side will be the, where the higher cognitive goes, which is where you still need the creativity and strategic thinking and the collaborative capabilities that only humans can bring. And we are still a long way away from machines replacing that. And I've started to understand that more in the past two years as I've gotten more involved in neuroscience. We are a long way away from that. So everybody in this room, you don't have to worry. Your job, the higher cognitive parts of your job will not be taken away by machines anytime soon. That's, that is, that'll happen to your children or your children's children. So you can, you can pass that 
that shit onto them. You don't, you don't have to deal with it. Uh, but, 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 but I think you will see the bifurcation in your own lifetimes between the kind of the, the, the scaled stuff, that lower cognitive stuff that, that AI can do, and then the higher cognitive, there'll be two different business models. We've had a lot of conversation the last two days that around 80% of Australians uh, can't get or can't afford advice. <clears throat> they may have, uh, they may be lower socioeconomic, they may have smaller superannuation balances or whatever. Yeah. This group and majority of the people that work uh, beneath and with this group are arguably servicing the top 5, 10, 15% of our communities. So there isn't yet a very good technology provider that's replacing humans to cover all of those. Yeah. So much of what's missing, I would think, and I'm happy to hear from the audience on this, but much of what, what is missing is the empathy aspects that a human, bring, a human being brings to a conversation when they consult around uh, end-of-life issues or financial planning strategy yeah. issues or whatever that might be. Yeah. How far away are we from having AI be empathetic, uh, empathetic and able to replace a human in that sense? It, I, I still think we're, a, I think we're a long way from scaled empathy. Um, I think we may, we may have it in isolated instances. But I would, uh, the, I would uh, those numbers are, are very revealing in one sense that, and, I, and Facebook had to deal, uh, Facebook and Google have dealt with the same problem in an, a slightly different realm. But when you think about, and I'll give you an example. So the difference between a Facebook and a Google, one difference, and sort of traditional media like newspaper, newspaper's dead, but like television, for example. So if you go to TV, they'll have maybe, if I went to Seven Network here in Australia, they might have 5,000 advertisers on their books that actually would run an ad at some point in time on television. They have now digital properties too, so it's a little bigger. But just take TV, you might have 5,000 advertisers in the whole book. Whereas at Facebook, we in Australia, when I left, we had 200,000 advertisers in Australia, which is probably now 400,000. And Facebook has millions of advertisers on its platform, and Google has millions. And the reason is it's not just the big guys anymore that advertise, it's everybody. You know, it's the guy who runs the cafe on the corner can now advertise. He would never run an ad on, or she would never run an ad on television. Might have put an ad in a, in a metropolitan newspaper, maybe, but it's probably it's, it's too broad distribution, it costs too much. They need something that's narrow, that's to their, their, their local neighborhood. Well, Google and Facebook provide exactly that. So they can take 20 bucks a month from the cafe they don't, aren't just reliant on $20,000 you know, TV ads that come from Toyota and, and Woolworths. So they have a much, much longer, longer tail. Now they've had to build for that long tail because buying ads actually has, uh, just a few years ago, was really hard to do on television or in newspapers, really relatively clunky. I can even remember having to put an, if you wanted to put a classified ad in the newspaper, even here in Sydney, I've been in Sydney a long time, you had to go down to Fairfax's office in, in the near, in like in the Ultimo, and you had to go see the lady behind the desk. You know, you had to fill, you had to handwrite it on a piece of paper, hand it over, and then they would, they would uh, publish it a couple of days later. We've obviously scaled that. That's been scaled quite a bit. But what Facebook and Google done is they've created these tools now that anybody, literally anybody on earth, can run an ad on Facebook and can do the analytics and get all the data and do all this sophisticated targeting and sort of slice and dice the audiences. They've taken tools that used to only belong to the top end of town and they've democratized them. And Google, Google's done it, Facebook's done it, Amazon has done it with how you list products, right? It's democratized it. And I think there's something in your industry, the same thing, it's, it's, it's taking these things and using AI and data, but finding ways to democratize so you create this, you, you start to open up that 85% that aren't receiving advice. 
So you've been on the inner circle of Mark Zuckerberg and, and others in Silicon Valley. You know how they think. Um, and um, <clears throat> you were the regional CEO for the many years, as said. Why hasn't Facebook, Google, Apple, et cetera, moved into n other revenue streams like superannuation, like banking, like yeah. financial advice? There were always, um, we've kind of observed, during my time there, there was two, two reasons. So, and so one was, your industry is heavily regulated. And this was a little, a few years ago when the regulatory kind of uh, spotlight wasn't so much on big tech. It's now gotten onto big tech. As we know from the Morrison government's uh, interventions recently, uh, Facebook don't like being regulated much, right? Yeah, Facebook, I mean, nobody likes being regulated. Do you? I mean, I'm sure, you know, and Facebook doesn't like it, Google doesn't like it. But, um, but regulation, the spotlight wasn't on Facebook for, or Google for regulation just a few years ago. And so they weren't going to put up their hand by getting involved in a regulated industry saying, hey, we're comfortable to be regulated. So that was a bad signal to send to the government. You know, if you go into a, an industry that's heavily regulated, you're saying, hey, I'm happy for, to be regulated. So they wanted to avoid the whole R word, didn't want it to be mentioned. And the second thing that was going on was they had enough growth in their core markets as it was. I mean, they were wildly profitable. Uh, you know, Facebook and Google are, are probably, the, if you drill into their numbers, they're the most profitable things that have ever been invented, right? I mean, it's amazingly high gross margin and just uber profitable, uber high growth. And they had a lot of growth to go through. And then Apple, meanwhile, had this ton of money that was sitting offshore. And so once that money was, once that money was freed up and actually got repatriated through Trump, um, that starts to, they, then they have money to play with. And so we always said, well, when regulation comes to tech and when, and when, they, and, and when growth starts to tap out in the core markets and when, and for Apple, the money starts to come home, that's when you'll see them start to make moves into more regulated markets like financial services. And I think thus we have started to see that. They've made, they, they all, you know, you can get a, you know, Amazon, you can, they, they provide financing for their, uh, many of the suppliers on their platforms today. You know, uh, you know, Apple has moved into the credit card business with American Express. Some of these are small moves, obviously. Um, you know, Facebook has had that, you know, attempt at crypto uh, currency with, uh, um, a couple years ago with their sort of blockchain currency. Um, and so they're all making moves, uh, but I think what's revealing, if you look at surveys of people about how they feel about big tech, you know, a question, you know, would you buy financial services when, from a big tech player, if you ask that of particularly millennials or younger folks, you know, it's 80% it's will say, yeah, I'd get a home loan so that, from Google. So that, so that's, that's, what, that's, I think, the biggest threat to the industry. So it's a real curious thing that that doesn't seem to be an, uh, an observation of uh, major banks, including our own, including that of uh, Wall Street organizations. You know, the uh, uh, Apple can buy in cash the top five financial institutions in the world, including you know, JP Morgan, yeah, in cash. cash, in cash, yeah, right, off their balance sheet. Uh, and yet there is no attempt, seemingly, to turn these big conservative, frowned upon brands in many ways into cool brands or more acceptable brands to a younger audience, which Facebook, Apple, and others enjoy. Well, I think. I mean, I'm not inside, they're deliberating, but they, they will come for financial services eventually because they're running out of growth. So they still need to keep, right, you gotta keep growing uh, no matter who you are. They have, they're huge companies, so they need huge growth. And that leaves you with three industries left that they're not in that are big enough to make a difference. And it's not, it's not you know, uh, self-driving cars. It's not, you know, these, these, these are rounding errors, right? Even if, you know, they're gonna take too long. These are big industries, so they're healthcare, education and financial services. Those are the three big ones that they're not in, that they need to start making major moves in if they're gonna continue their growth. So, 
And you could toss in entertainment as well, uh, but it's, it's really those other three. And of course, healthcare and financial services are heavily regulated, and education to an extent is as well. So they're, you know, they're, they're I mean, they've, look, they're spending a lot of money trying to do experiments in those spaces now. Amazon's done a big thing in healthcare. If you look at Microsoft or IBM, the, the sort of smaller tech guy, right, Microsoft's big, but they're doing things in healthcare, Apple is. Uh, but they're trying to figure stuff out. And they're, they're learning what works and what doesn't work. And they're also learning things. For things like healthcare and financial services, you may feel like you're in an industry that, you know, uh, you know well, and maybe it's kind of painful to you sometimes. Like, oh, I wish we could get out of all the regulation in our industry. But you know what? It's a huge moat against guys like big tech because it's things don't work. The, you know, I was in Facebook where we like we just made stuff happen. Whereas in in things like healthcare and in financial services, you, you can't do that. You you have the eye of the regulator on you all the time. You have compliance on you all the time. Uh, it's it's a very different environment, different cultures, different rules, different talent, different financial metrics. It's it is hard to do. They will get into it, but it's not it's not easy. So we're going to go to audience questions in a minute. We've only got about 20 minutes left of the session and the conference. Um, uh, we do have the Managing Director of Advice for AMP here. He's just taken up the job a couple of months ago. So I know he wants to, to turn his brand into a cool brand. So maybe you guys can connect up afterwards uh, and, and, and share some you know, ideas. It is a cool brand. What's <laughs> um, but what, what, is it, what, is the, what can we all learn from Facebook that we don't already know? What are, the, uh, what are the insights that you would think that none of us in this room would be surprised to learn? Sorry, many of us would be surprised to yeah. learn the genius yeah. of Facebook. Yeah, and so I, and I, I, some people know a bit about what, what I talk about publicly. And, and I'm a, I've become known as a more of a Facebook critic in recent times. I've kind of written an op-ed uh, and, and sort of, I speak out, not that I'm on some sort of soapbox, but people approach me. Facebook and Google do crazy things and then my phone rings. And often I talk to the press. And the reason I do that is I just think it's good for people to have different perspectives. I don't think I'm right. Often I don't know the right answer, but I think it's good to, for all of us to kind of think about these things together. And uh, so that said, that said, I do have a lot of admiration for what these companies have done. And so I think in answer to your question, what wouldn't you know about Facebook? I think one thing I talk about when I talk to leaders about technology is a counterintuitive thing, and you learn about it when you, if you work at any of the big tech players in, in California or Atlassian here or you know, those guys. And what you learn is in technology companies, the most important thing is not technology, it's people. And it's sort of an irony. It's actually people that are most important. People are the software that makes everything work. Um, people are your customers, people are your employees, people are your shareholders. And so, uh, one of the things that really struck me when I got to Facebook is it spent more time investing in people and culture than any company I ever worked for, almost to an absurd level. We spent so much time on people, you know, leadership development, culture, you know, how are we going to make sure we have the right culture, the right talent, we can help that talent unleash its power. And I spent more time in performance reviews and culture survey reviews and action planning at Facebook than anywhere else. And it went from Mark Zuckerberg all the way down. So, you know, every company you work in, for example, will do a culture survey. I'm sure you got them. You know, Facebook did their own twice a year. That was an absolute religion at Facebook. It went from Mark Zuckerberg on down, like you, and, and it was like 100%, we wanted 100% of people to fill in the form, and we were dogged in getting 100% of people. We didn't want one person in the whole company not to fill in the survey. And then we were absolutely religious about transparency in the results, and then what are we going to do about it? 
And so if you were a leader in the business, you had to have an action plan about what are you going to do about the two or three weaknesses in your culture survey. And our culture surveys were through the roof. Like, people would come from other companies and they would laugh. They go, you know, you, we would be scoring like 99%, and they'd be like, my other company, we would get 71%. We thought that was great. Here at Facebook, you're at 99%, and you're still like obsessed by the 1% you're not getting right. There was just this obsession with culture and people. And I think that is absolutely true into the future for all companies. We are all competing for talent. We're all looking for the Einsteins. And we all have, and the best people in the world have plenty of options where to work. So if you, if talent is important to the success of your business, you have to be focused on how the, the, the culture they work in, how you develop them, how you keep them at their best. So Stephen, um, I, uh, I had an experience uh, very long ago when I was the youngest store manager of McDonald's restaurants in Australia, uh, about 30 something years ago. So one of my earliest career moves, and I spent several years, a couple of years at McDonald's. I went to the Hamburglar University, uh, studied McDonald's. Um, learned that McDonald's wasn't a food company, it was actually a giant real estate company. Um, all these, uh, not that many years later, I started getting buyer's remorse and wondering why did I spend that time in that organisation? Because in hindsight, I think McDonald's is one of the most crass, exploitive, uh, awful organisations on the planet. They were a big client of mine at Facebook. I, I wasn't I'm sure they were. I'm surprised to say that. You probably can see where this question's going. Uh, as Facebook uh, has uh, been caught out exploiting the world, the world's data, privacy, uh, and become a bully in many ways. Yeah in many organizations, in many countries, to its employees, et cetera, et cetera. Do you have any buyer's remorse? Great question. Um, I don't know if it's buyer's remorse, but I think, um, I think I left at the right time, to be honest with you. And I, I think I often say to my wife, if I was still at Facebook, I, would, I, I, I wouldn't enjoy myself anymore. And one, and one because the nature of my, the, the role I would do would change. You know, as you go more senior, you deal with more you, know, you deal with things that you don't really want to deal with, but you have to because you're getting in, in that pay grade. The, the things that you loved to do, you're not doing anymore. And so in the early days at Facebook, I loved what I did every day. And then by the time I was, uh, by, by the end of my time there, I wasn't loving it as much. It was, I was just doing it. And so that's one of the reasons I left. Um, but in the background also, I was getting a little, a little uncomfortable with the, just sort of the, the ethical position of Facebook. And that doesn't mean Facebook was full of bad people, but it's, it's got the power of social media and the internet and some of these you know, is so great that I think there's an extra level of responsibility that we should expect these companies to shoulder. And I'm not sure if that should happen through uh, like regulation or just moral you know, f force or, uh, or you know, changing how the, you know, Facebook's controlled by Mark and Mark can't be fired. I think that's a problem, to be honest with you. I love Mark, but I... You know, I think he has too much power. I think that corrupts some of the decision making that's made in Facebook. And you know, they're not bad people, but ultimate, you know, power kind of uh, uh, absolute power corrupts, corrupts absolutely. And Mark has absolute power. Um, but I think the, the power that these platforms have, and Facebook's one example, is so great that we it it is a mistake to leave it in the hands of just Facebook. And um, and I think we made a lot of decisions in the early days that, in retrospect, were naive. Not ill-intended, but naive. But you know, it's if you run somebody on your, over in your car and you didn't mean to do it, you can still get charged with manslaughter. It may not be if you did it, intend to do it, that's murder, right? You go to jail for a lot longer. I think Facebook's been kind of, you know, running people over in their car and didn't mean to do it, but you know, Mark's still the guy driving it. And so, there's a level of accountability I think that that company doesn't have today that is, has led to some of the problems we see.
So I wanted to change the direction a moment to, uh, to brain science and, and end the uh, conference on a, on a real, what I think is a real high in terms of what's possible and, and transformation yep. that may be coming with Omnison. Um, I think we're allowed to talk about that, aren't we? Sure, yeah. yeah. Before we go there though, what is the solution when you do look at, I mean, many of the people in the room, parents, any parents? Okay. Parents of uh, teenagers or people, young people, 12, 13, 15 year olds, great. Anyone concerned about their social media usage and the impacts on them? Yep, great. So uh, suicide rates, record highs around the world pretty much, and uh, Instagram and, and uh, Facebook and other social medias um, are being blamed for some or a lot of that. Of course, on the flip side, people are getting connected, communicating through a pandemic like they've never been able to before. Uh, they can't get on planes, but they've got this incredible resource called social media. So very extreme examples mm. of the good and the bad of, of, what, of what that looks like. How do we mitigate the bad? What's, what's the world going to look like? And I guess the final part is on that question is the recent law changes that the Morrison government has introduced that is becoming a game changer globally in your comments on that. Okay, two, a lot, of, a lot in there. I'll try to give sure. a few observations um, because we, we probably don't have a ton all day. Um, but one, you know, the negative externalities, the bad effects of social media and the internet more generally, I think have become serious enough that, you know, and I've spoken about a lot about this, you know, we need to address them. And there's kind of four stages we need to go through. One is we need better data to understand the impacts of what's going on. So, you know, how polluted is the air in Sydney today? You, everyone in the, of us could jump on our phone right now and we could find what the pollution index is in, Sydney, in any, almost any city in the world. How bad is the traffic in you know, Paris today? You can find it. Uh, uh, on the route you're gonna travel, you can find out how bad the traffic is, air pollution, traffic. How efficient um, are the hospitals today in, uh, in uh, Chicago? You know, what, are the, uh, you know, what, what are the admission rates? What's, you can find that data. It's actually really easy, it's at the at a fingertips. Look what we've learned with COVID. Like every day we know how many people are getting sick or dying, uh, tragically. Um, how polluted is the internet today? How do we know the answer? Well, what do we mean by pollution? Uh, where do, where's that data, where's the, that? We don't have the answer, but we know it's a problem. So one is we gotta figure out, how, where are we gonna have to get the data to just measure the pollution? One, two, what's an acceptable level that we're willing to live with, right? So there's acceptable levels of pollution that we're li willing to live with that we've kind of figured out. If we want to really eliminate pollution, we'd shut down industry, get every car off the street. If we don't do that, there's an acceptable level. And we try to manage that level through regulation and, and controls. But we don't know that with the internet and the social media today. So we don't know the, we don't have the data to measure it. We don't know what the right level is. Uh, and then third, we don't know how to in impose that, enforce that, right? So we, but without the data and knowing what you're trying to enforce, it's really hard to enforce anything because you don't have the level. And then finally, we probably, we don't even have the language to talk about it. We, we're still struggling to figure out, well, how do we really talk about and contextualize the good and bad of the internet and, and make that part and parcel of how we think about the world. I use an analogy, if I ask everybody in this room, if somebody walked in your house and took your toaster from your kitchen and you left the, door to your kitchen unlocked, you'd, you'd walked out the door for a little while, the door's unlocked, somebody unplugged your toast and walked off with it. I, I ask everybody in this room, is that a crime? Put up your hand. Great, I assume everybody puts them there. It's a crime, we all know it. But if somebody takes your picture and then uses that data and that information in another way as you know, you're walking down the street, is that a crime? Well, uh, don't know, could be, depends on what they use it for, depends who took it, depends on, depends, depends, depends. My point, 
they're both worthless things, basically. You know, you're, you know, they're, they're, you're kind of, but we understand property rights intuitively. You didn't have to, you didn't, none of you had to Google the New South Wales penal code, you know, criminal code, to understand that stealing a, a toaster is illegal. We know it in our bones. But we don't know in our bones anything. We don't have the same measure with our, prop our property rights around our data. And that needs to change as well. So that is a bit of a shift that's going to take years of just these sorts of conversations. One of the reasons I like to come out and talk is like, I want people to think about, how should I think about my data rights and, and, my, and my data identity? And that is what's a big thing that's going to change in the coming years. I think there's going to be a lot more um, the rise of data identity and, and sovereign control. So in, in 30 years' time, when you talk to your children or grandchildren about how the, this data Wild West went today, they'll go, that's nuts. What, you get on the internet, anybody can see what you're doing, they'd have a cookie that would track you and then serve you, are you crazy? You know, everything will be locked down, you'll control it. You know, it, I, I think we're living through a Wild West that'll be gone in about you know, 10, 15 years' time. Recent government changes that were uh, world-changing? World yeah, so you're referring to the, uh, the code trying to get us, the, the big tech guys to negotiate yeah, um, so, so media deals. Yeah, media, yeah. media freedom and, uh, and democracy, protecting democracy through, through uh, the big tech companies having to pay and contribute towards journalism. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't know if it's going to fully protect democracy. I think it's a step in the right direction. I've, I've had lunch with the prime minister uh, on this topic. Um, I got, it's funny, when that happened, so this showed how much Australia led the world. And Facebook has done kind of, you know, and Google have done different things over the years that have been a little crazy since I left Facebook. And my phone rings. Uh, but, you know, a few journalists ring me. But this, when that happened, I was actually up in the Whit Sundays kind of uh, with a friend on their boat, and my phone blew up that morning. It was, I had, I had Chris Wallace from Fox News call me personally, who's, you know, Chris Wallace is you know, he's a bit of an iconic reporter in the U.S. So I had to pick up my phone and it's like, this is Chris Wallace from Fox News. I was like, Chris Wallace? How cool is that, you know? And so <laughs> everybody was chasing this story, right? So the world was watching. I got calls from Colombia, France, uh, Helsinki, like all over the world. And the reason why they were watching the story was for the first time in the world, there was really a, a solid government attempt to force big tech to share the spoils of, 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 of advertising with the traditional media companies. In my view, this has come 10 years too late. Unfortunately, you know, the, the, the media industry in this country had its hands tied for a long time in how it, was, how it could compete, not only with big tech, but just with each other. That was lifted about five years ago, um, but it was too late. And uh, I think they made, the media industry in this country made a lot of mistakes anyway that probably would have, may have, would have sunk their business models anyway, but they, they definitely didn't have an advantage. Um, but I think now we're getting to a good place. And you may, I think you can criticize the legislation. There's some imperfections. There's things that aren't quite right. But hey, it's a step in the right direction. And I think we need to be doing something. We can't wait for, for, for perfection. We have to do something. And I think it's had the right effect. It has forced Google and Facebook to strike deals that they would never would have struck if they didn't have the, this hand of the regulation hanging over them. So well done to, to Scott Morrison. So uh, we've had uh, Stephen speak a couple of times at various events uh, of Connexus over the last four months, and he's booked in for a couple of other different cohorts over the next, uh, the rest of this year. Uh, and I got to learn about his current uh, passion. He's, he does a variety of, of things, uh, and uh, one of his passions uh, is neuro, neurology, neuroscience, and uh, working with Dr. Charlie Teo and uh, creating a company, a global company, uh, that's in its second funding round at the moment. It is, Raising yeah. $70 million, which I'm a proud investor in at a modest level. Uh, and that that is uh, about transforming humanity 
and all sorts of mental health uh, because of what can now be seen uh, with MRIs and overlaying that and mapping that. And so I'd like to, to kind of have you explain a little bit, I guess, about you know, you, the descriptive you gave me when we first met is yeah. this is really your being CEO of Facebook or Google, but could be even bigger uh, in terms of impact on the world. And really what it is is going from a UBD or a Melways of the brain to Google Maps. That's right. Yeah. Tell us about that. Any impacts? Yeah. So uh, uh, when you think about it, right now there's a gold rush in the world for data, right? Everybody's looking for data. Internet of Things, or sensors and everything, you know, you know uh, internet data, data from your phone. More data has been generated in the last two years than in all of history, right, B before. It's, we're in a data tsunami. But the one place that, that a lot of uh, folks aren't looking is the most important data source in the world, which is the, the brain between your ears. There's almost 8 billion brains on Earth. It is the most advanced computer we know. And it's the most complex thing in the universe that we've ever come across. You have over almost 100 billion neurons in your brain, and they fire thousands of times a minute. It is an enormously complex data problem to figure out. Now, we've known this for a long time, but we haven't had the tools to figure it out until just the last five years or so. And it's largely the tools that have been built by the likes of Facebook, Google, Amazon, um, around algorithms, around uh, processing speed, around having the cloud to store lots of data. All this has come together now. And so what we do, this company called, this company's called Omniscient, and we, were found, we got ourselves going about a year and a half ago, and we use big data, analytical AI, machine learning techniques to look at brain data in order to build much more sophisticated maps of the brain, essentially a, an atlas of the human brain. The analogy uses is right, that most of the, the, the state of brain maps today is really like the old UBD or Melways uh, thing you had in your glove box. We build Google Maps of the brain. It's a, it's a, it's a quantum leap. Now, you might say, well, that's interesting. What, what are brain maps for? Well, we map the networks of your brain, and it, it had, we, we believe this is transformational for our understanding of mental illness, um, uh, dementia, Alzheimer's, uh, and, and even intelligence and emotion. And so we're now starting to build products out of these brain maps that we are taking to the world. We, our first one is, a, is for neurosurgeons. We built them a uh, the best map in the world because a neurosurgeon is going to cut into your brain if you're having surgery and they want to avoid networks. And a lot of those networks they cannot see. And we map networks that have never been mappable before in human history. Like you, you have networks, things called the default mode network in your brain. You have a, a, a central executive network. A lot of these are related to those higher cognitive functions around, uh, around multitasking, around self-reflection, around um, emotional regulation and control. And unfortunately, brain surgeons cut through those networks without knowing where they are. And so they might get a patient that comes out the other end who uh, their motor skills are okay, they can see, they can speak, but you know what? They're glassy-eyed or their personality is completely changed or they can't concentrate. And it's because these surgeons have cut through a network they couldn't see. So we're making it apparent to those surgeons what networks they can see. Now we're building also these maps for uh, mental health professionals, psychiatrists, so that now if you go to see a if, if you're feeling depressed or anxious, um, if you go to see a, a psychiatrist or a mental health professional, they will not scan your brain because it won't tell them anything. They will come back with a functional, a, a structural map of your brain. With our test, they will see everything. We'll be able to show exactly where your suicidality is, where your lack of inability to sleep, where your agoraphobia is, where your fear of crowds is, where your, um, you know, wh where your sadness is. And then we give these maps to pharmaceutical companies and therapy developers to be able to target 
exactly where in your brain networks they need to be targeted. And unlike genomics, our field, which is called connectomics, genomics is the mapping of the human genome, connectomics is the mapping of the human brain. But in genomics, it's, once you're born, you can't change your genome. It's actually very hard to change your genetics. It's one of the reasons why ge genomics hasn't kind of exploded the way we thought it would just 10 years ago. It's hard, it's hard and ethically very uh, difficult to change your genome. Your connectome, your brain networks, your brain rewires itself all the time. Um, your brain is it's called plastic. It, it actually can be rewired and it's rewirable. You take an aspirin, you drink a beer, it rewires your brain. And so with our tools, we, uh, we think there's the, the promise that for things like Alzheimer's, dementia, for mental health, we can actually just essentially help people's brains get rewired. And, and so you're not depressed anymore. You're not suicidal. You can walk. You can see. Um, you're more intelligent. Uh, you're better at maths. Uh, so it starts to open up a whole world for us. And ultimately, I was talking with a guy who was a chief data scientist at another data company, and he, when I, a good friend, and I described to him what we were doing, and he kind of dug into our stuff, and he goes, what you're talking about is the biggest company in history, if you can, if you can make it happen. I say, yeah, because we have 8 billion people on Earth that we can radically, we think radically improve their lives. So that's, that's what we're doing in that space, and it's opened up a whole new world to me around neurology, neuroscience, uh, and the brain that I, I really didn't understand before. Thanks, Stephen, and uh, amazing stuff, right? I wasn't quite 100% sure I'd believe it, so I uh, went and had a brain scan a couple of weeks ago, uh, an MRI, uh, went and saw, you don't even know this, we haven't spoken since, yep. but uh, went and saw one of your founders, uh, one of the neurologists uh, that gave me a two-hour uh, journey through my brain, uh, in literally in, in color, in full daylight, explaining exactly what was going on in my brain. I've got a few abnormalities, that won't surprise anyone in the room. Was able to, they were able to explain exactly what they were and where they were located, uh, and so on and so forth. And it was, it was phenomenal. Uh, so I certainly uh, think it's uh, potentially transformative for the world. And, and thank uh, you in for such it. great ways that uh, if yep. you can reduce suicide, if you can improve mental health, if you can predict uh, dementia and, and Alzheimer's, which I wasn't aware, but medically you can't do much about it once you've got it. There's plenty that can be done if it can be predicted in advance of getting it. Uh, that's transformative. Um, this is before creating any kind of new pharmaceuticals or any new therapies to treat all of this stuff. Uh, it can pre-predict PTSD, so before someone goes into the military, you know, the, the, the uh, I believe the Israeli government, uh, US government likely to subscribe to this stuff to be able to pre-predict uh, and, and limit uh, the impacts on people uh, in those circumstances as well, et cetera, et cetera. We are right on three o'clock, so I'll forgive anyone who wants to race out the door. We're going to finish in just a few minutes, and I apologise in advance for being late, but I want to allow questions from the floor to tidy this up. Thank you. Just your name and organisation, please, Bernie. And anyone else, just put your light on, on your, you know the deal by now. Go ahead. Uh, Bernie Ripoll with Map My Plan, but uh, formerly a, a politician and having to deal with ethics uh, on a regular basis on some key questions that come before us. And I just, look, I love what you're doing. I think that's uh, an enormous benefit to humankind and, and a whole range of things. But Thank you. I just can't help getting out of my mind just that really big ethical question around what all that, I mean, my mind's just racing with all the good yeah. and bad. Uh, and, and just, and even a simpler question is, what right do we have to change someone, however they make up, if they have a, let's call it a, uh, something that's not considered normal, Whose right is it to alter that? Um, you know, we, we have those debates around people with um, with disability and a whole range of other things, and I, and I think that that is a big question. Yeah, yeah really, right. really valuable question. I've got 40 seconds to answer yeah, it. Um, but 
it, no, it's a question we uh, we grapple with every day, and we're trying. Unlike Facebook, which a company I love, but we, we weren't good at ethics in our core when we started. We are building ethics into our core today. Our founders are, the two of our founders, co-founders are doctors, so they've grown up in a Hippocratic world. And uh, we realize that what we're enabling can enable good and bad in the world, and we're gonna try as damned, our damnedest to make it as, as, as much good and limit the bad as, as we possibly can. So, okay, table great question. Table seven. Well, we'll finish up in three or four minutes, guys. We will promise. It may not be an easy question to answer. Sorry, Pete Foley, uh, Fairview Financial Planning. A lot of hands went up with, when you asked a question about kids. What advice would you give to parents uh, to have their children interact in a healthy way with the internet and social media? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a big question. Ironically, you know, you, you go to Facebook and all, you'll find a lot of Facebook people don't let their kids use social media, which is uh, very telling. Even though they try to keep their teenagers off it if they can't, which is, you know, good luck with that. Um, Look, I think as with anything, you've got to have frank discussions, uh, talk about the good and the bad, uh, get, try to understand what, how they're using, what platforms they're using, how they're using them, so that you're speaking from a position of knowledge, not just, you know, you don't, you've never been on TikTok, you have no idea how it works. So, you know, and, you know, and, and in years gone by, there were other problems that we had to deal with as parents. Uh, my parents, you know, the, you know this, this, the, the birds and the bees question has always been a big one that, that traditionally always has to be dealt with. I think this just adds, unfortunately, to parents' complexity of life. Uh, I don't have an easy answer for you. So I think it's just good old-fashioned parenting. Stay close to your kids, have frank discussions, uh, you know, and, and have enough trust with your children that they can come to you and talk to you about things that might, they might, be, might not be comfortable with. And I think that's the best thing you can do. Tom, Great question. table three. Do your kids use social media? Uh, my kids are five, three, and three months. So, okay, so no. <laughs> uh, they're, they're still pre-social media, although my, all of them know the word uh, YouTube, which they call NewTube, uh, so they, but that's YouTube kids. Um, but no, that, is, that challenge is ahead of me. Um, and I, I, but hopefully by the time we get there, there'll be more controls in place, and there'll be new problems to deal with by then, uh, by the time they're 18. But, yeah, great question, and, I, and uh, you know, I, I sympathize with all of you as parents. You know, it's, it's hard enough being a parent, but now we've got social media to deal with, uh, and the internet in general. So. I think it was a great way to close the conference and finish it all off. Thanks for uh, sticking with us. Uh, please put your hands together. Stephen Schiller. Thank you. Thank you.